All right, well, let's, uh, let's ask the Lord to bless our time. Father, we are grateful for the gathering of your church and the opportunity to learn about your word and what you've revealed to your people. Pray that you would be with Paul this evening as he preaches at the prison. Uh, may your spirit go with him. May his ministry there be effective. Uh, may you draw your people unto yourself. May the word go out and do what you have purposed for it to do. We love you, and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, well, unfortunately for you guys, the good preaching and teaching has gone to prison this evening. So you're stuck with me, but hopefully that won't be too negative of an experience. Now, uh, I have to warn you, I'm not nearly as good of a speaker or a preacher as Paul. In fact, uh, I can't preach really at all. That's not really my calling. I do teach for a living, so I can give lectures, so that's kind of what this is going to be. It's going to be a lecture, kind of like I give my classes, though on a very, very different topic. Um, I want to start by placing tonight's, and I do walk around, I can't really stand in a single spot, so if that bothers you, I'm sorry. Uh, I'll, I'll try not to do it too much, but I know I will at some point. Uh, I want to start by placing tonight's lecture in a context. So as you know, we've started a, a series on the 1689, though as of yet we've not cracked the thing open. We are taking the long way around of getting started uh, in it, and this will be the final of our preliminary or groundwork lectures. Uh, if you'll remember four weeks ago, I think, we talked about a defense of historical theology, why it is the duty of Christians to study the works of God throughout history. That includes what he's recorded in his word, but also what he's been doing since his uh, ascension, for we know that uh, God has not stopped working amongst his people since the time of Christ. In fact, uh, he's been doing quite a bit. That's why we're all here this evening. Then we went through uh, a biblical defense of creeds and confessions. We talked about why we hold to a confession of faith. Even though there's no verse that says, thou shalt hold to a confession of faith, we do believe it is consistent with Scripture to let people know what you believe and to spell it out uh, and not try to hide anything. So we hold to the 1689. Then two weeks ago, we went through the history of the background of the confession. We looked at the Reformation and how the events of the Reformation uh, led to the creation of a state church in England, and how the reformers, or shall we say the Puritans of that time, found fault with the Church of England. They desired to purify that church, and so they came up with a confession that they believed best exemplified the teachings of Scripture. And then last week, we went through a very detailed, very lengthy, easily the most detailed uh, outline of the confession that I've ever seen. Did Paul come up with that himself? Is that what I understand? Yeah, so that's impressive. Uh, I don't know how long that took him. But we walk through that point by point, and that brings us to tonight. And tonight, we are seeking to answer the question. This is what Paul has tasked me with doing. It's a big task. We'll see if we can get it done in an hour. But he's asked us to answer the question, why does the confession begin where it does? If you remember last week's outline, or from your own personal study, the confession, the 1689, begins with a discussion of... Scripture, pastor's wife, gets that one. Do I? Oh, excuse me, I'm sorry. Good job. I thought it was Christy. Yes, it begins with a discussion of Scripture, and there's a reason for that. Now, how many of you are familiar with what a systematic theology is? I assume that's most of us. Okay. As Paul has said in some of his lectures or his addresses over the past few weeks, the confession is kind of like a systematic theology in that it goes through a list of topics or doctrines of the Christian faith 
point by point and lays out what the authors of the confession believe uh, that scripture teaches on those subjects. And that's what a systematic theology does, although in a much longer form. And any confession or any systematic theology worth its salt has a rationale or a logic for how it lays itself out. They don't just roll the dice or they don't just write down all the topics, throw them in a hat and pick one out and say, okay, we'll start with this one. There's a reason for it. That's what we're seeking to address this evening. Now, the title of tonight's lecture is called Developing a Reformed and Biblical Epistemology. Now, why would the title of tonight's lecture be so seemingly different from the question we're seeking to answer? Well, the answer is not too hard to find. It's because the answer to why the confession begins where it does has to do with epistemology. Now, a word of warning before we get started. Given the nature of what we're doing here, there's really no way to avoid that some of this is going to be a little philosophical in nature. Now, I'm going to do my best to keep it concise, avoid that unnecessary jargon. Those big words that philosophers make up so that they can confuse people and then people will pay them to explain what the words mean that they made up. I'm going to try not to use too many uh, of those because I don't understand half of them myself, honestly. But, as you'll see, I've already thrown one of them into the title, so let's tackle that word up front. Epistemology. You also will have to deal with my handwriting, which my students complain about on a daily basis. Epistemology, you remember from school that ology, anything with ology on it, is the study of something. We have biology, study of life, psychology, study of the mind, sociology, study of society or how peoples interact with one another. And epistes, knowledge. So this is the study of knowledge. Now, that still may seem rather abstract. What do we mean by the study of knowledge? I mean, you can kind of figure out what the study of life is, but the study of knowledge is, is in and of itself a rather abstract concept. But it can really be reduced down to a simple child's question. As many of you who have children who can begin to speak and think for themselves know, they ask little questions, inquiring questions all the time, the most common of which is the why question. Dads, if you're out uh, mowing the lawn and you realize that your mower needs an oil change and you bring it into the garage and your kids are playing there and they ask, what are you doing? And you say, oh, I'm changing the oil. On my lawnmower, they might well ask why. Or they might ask why about just about anything. That's the most common question they ask. But another question, although not quite as common, that children may ask is, how do you know? If you tell your kids it's going to rain tomorrow, they may ask you, how do you know? And that's a proper question. How do you know? Now, you might say, well, the weatherman told me it was going to rain. Well, how does the weatherman know? Well, there are answers to those questions, but the point is, for anything we claim to know, or any action we take where we assume a certain knowledge and then act on the basis of it, we might well ask ourselves, how do we know what we know? That's the question that epistemology, as a field of study, if you can call it that, seeks to answer. Now, in the area of religion, which is what we're doing this evening, broadly speaking, the fundamental epistemological or knowledge question, sorry, my mouth gets dry pretty quickly, uh, the fundamental epistemological or knowledge question that we seek to answer is, how do you know that God exists? That's a question that pretty much all of us have wrestled with on some level, either explicitly or implicitly, 
And I would imagine that pretty much all rational creatures with normal functioning capacities have thought of that question on some level at some point in their life. And certainly, in the history of the church, um, men who, and women who profess to believe in God have sought to come up with answers for how we know that God exists, given that they want to have a defense for their belief in the event that they're asked. And there have been two methods in the history of the church, this is a generalization, but generally, two methods or two models for answering that question, how do we know that God exists? And so what I want to do now is walk through both of those means of answering that question. We're going to compare them, mostly contrast them, and then conclude that one is more consistent with Scripture than the other. So, now this is where if I had my big board that I use in class, I wouldn't have to erase this. I would just move over to the next section. But since we have such a tiny board, I've got to erase the definition. And then if you like to take notes on these kind of things, this would be where you would start. So, model number one for answering the question, how do we know God exists? We will call this model the model of autonomous reason. The model of autonomous reason. Let's talk about what autonomy means. Autos, self. Namas, law, self-law. When something is a law unto itself, that means there's nothing outside of it that determines or dictates to it what it will do, think, or say. In the area of humans, or human autonomy, we typically think of a synonym for that as free will. If a human is autonomous, he or she has free will, and as Reformed people especially, we are sensitive to the topic of free will. Someone with free will is free to do as they please. There's nothing in the final analysis that will determine what they will do other than themselves. Now, there may be external influences on what they do, the culture they grow up in, the kind of household they were raised in, the activities they get involved in. All those things may influence an autonomous person to do certain things, but in the final analysis, it's up to them as to what they're actually going to do. That's autonomous. Reason, pretty self-explanatory, the mental processes, processes that we use to come to conclusions or to take in knowledge about things. So when we're talking about autonomous reason, we're getting at the idea that our reasoning as human beings is sufficient in and of itself to do the tasks that we assign to it. We don't need to inquire as to the basis of, a, of our reasoning abilities, where they come from, etc. Our reasoning can function independently of anything else. This will become a little more concrete in just a moment, hopefully. We're going to draw a big circle here. This circle, the new England, can you see the edges of it there? This circle represents everything that exists. Everything. This is not a spatial circle. This is not saying, like, this is the world and everything is contained physically within it, because even God himself is included in this circle. It's just a limiting concept for everything. At the center in this model of everything, wow, that's a terrible rectangle, is man. Now again, we're not saying man is physically at the center of everything, as in we're at the center of the universe and everything is exactly you know, a certain distance away from us. It's, it has to do with 
the center of man as man is the center of everything in the sense that he's the final reference point for himself or herself for all knowledge and thought. Everything starts and ends with man from man's perspective. Also, in this universe of everything is the created world. The created world. That includes trees, buildings, cars, the ocean, planets, you name it. It's in the created world and other human beings. It also includes non-physical things such as concepts, numbers, the stuff that we talk about and think about often but we can't tangibly get a hold of. Now what's true of the created world in relationship to man in this? Well, the created world is outside of us. You all are outside of me. You're not inside of me. You're out there somewhere. From my perspective, there's me. I'm at the center. And you are out there. And so are the chairs and the building and all that stuff. Everything is external to me. The final piece of this puzzle is God. Now, like the created world, God, from man's perspective, is outside of him or outside of her. You, you kind of think of sort of the crude image that we or the average human has when you go out at night and you look up at the stars and you think, wow, that's beautiful, and God's out there somewhere. He, he's up there. Now, we don't literally think he's like sitting on top of a star out there somewhere, but it, the idea is I'm here and he's there somewhere. Now, he's not physically inside of me. That's why we say he's out there. Hold your objections about the spirit dwelling within us. That's a different context altogether. But, so if man is at the center, again, epistemologically, in terms of knowledge, and everything else in the universe is outside of him, how does he take in knowledge of anything else? I mean, Nate is not in, he's not me, he's not in me, but yet I know things about Nate. How? Well, what do they call it? Epistemologists? That's a weird word. Distinguish between two different types of knowledge or ways of gaining knowledge. Man, we are really limited on space here. First means of gaining knowledge from man are called epistemic. What am I talking about? Sorry, wrong word there. Empirical. I can't spell. Empirical. That's not right either. There we go. Principles. Empirical principles. Now that's a fancy word, but all it means is basically your five senses. So, for example, if I want to take in knowledge of this podium, I can use my five senses to do so. I can look at it and I can see it's about chest height on me. It's wider than me. I can use my sense of touch to feel. It's probably hollow inside. And then I can look and verify, yep, there's a hole there. Uh, if I wanted to get a little weird, I might could put my nose to it and smell it. And maybe if I happen to be an expert in what types of wood smell a certain way, that might tell me something. And if I wanted to get really, really weird, I could put my tongue on it. And who knows, maybe I could take in knowledge of it in some way from there. But the point is, I can gain knowledge of this just by applying my five senses to it. We're, in, we're intuitively familiar with this. We do it every single day. That's step number, method number one of gaining knowledge. Number two, and yes, I promise this will tie back into the confession, don't worry, is rational principles. 
rational principles. That's another way of gaining knowledge about the world around you. So uh, I happen to have graduated from first grade, and in first grade I learned that one plus two equals three. Now how did I learn that? Well, did, did I apply my empirical principles, my five senses to it? Did I see that the number one and smell that addition and hear that two equals three? That, that's absurd. It makes no sense to even talk that way. No, I can't use my five senses. Why? Because numbers and addition, those kind of concepts, they're not physical. They're not tangible. I can't apply my five senses to them. So how did I learn it? Well, I applied my reasoning. I had a concept of what the number one was. I had a concept of what addition is, and I synthesized that together with the number two and figured out one plus two is three. Again, we're intuitively familiar with this, but this is important. The two ways that we gain knowledge of the things around us, at least on this model, are our five senses and our reasoning capabilities. Now, if we want to take in knowledge of the created world, for the most part, we use our five senses. Things that are physical, we learn about them from the five senses. But if we want to take in knowledge of God as men, which of those two makes the most sense? Can we touch God, smell God, hear God? I mean, he could talk and manifest himself, but in his innermost being, who he is in and of himself, he's not physical, he's spirit. So we can't use our empirical or five senses to take in knowledge of him. So what are we left with? We're left with rational principles or reasoning. So in other words, if you want to get from here, yourself, to God, who's out there, for this model, you've got to use reasoning. We'll go sideways. You have to use reason. Now, we're all kind of familiar with this. You've heard of the arguments for the existence of God. What are those? They're people attempting to reason their way from themselves or something they observe in the created order to God. They're trying to conclude that he exists and then find out whatever they can about him. In the history of the church, the person who is by far and away most famously associated with this idea of reasoning from yourself to God is a man by the name of Thomas Aquinas. Anybody heard that name before? A few people have heard that name. Okay, that's good. I won't bore you to death with his biography, just a few details to give you a context. He was a 13th century, that's the 1200s, Roman Catholic monk. He was a part of the Dominican order, which you can think of the different orders of monks as kind of like fraternities. That's a bit of an anachronistic term. But the Dominicans were very scholarly. They didn't do as much of that community service stuff that monks are known for. They sat around and they thought and they were philosophers and theologians. And Thomas Aquinas is, I think without a doubt, one of the top three, if not top two, smartest people to ever call themselves a Christian. Now, I disagree with him on all kinds of stuff. I think he was he got off on so many issues. But there's no doubt that the man was an absolute genius. He truly was. He wrote voluminously. We as Reformed people look at a man like John Calvin and say, wow, that guy wrote a lot. And he did. But he's got nothing on Thomas Aquinas. Aquinas, he didn't even live to be past 40-something. But he was writing nonstop. And he had scribes walking around behind him writing down every word he said because they were trying to soak it all in themselves. I mean, you could, there are Aquinas scholars who start their career at like 20-something, and they die, and they've not yet read all of Thomas Aquinas, and they've been trying. I mean, he just wrote a ridiculous amount. But the thing he's most famous for 
is coming up with what are known as the five ways or the five arguments for the existence of God. Now, we're not going to walk through every single one of them. We wouldn't, we'd run out of time before we even got through number two, probably. But I do want to walk you through his most famous argument so you can get a concrete idea of how someone attempts to go from themselves and reason to God. Hopefully, this will make things a little bit more concrete. So, this will be my example. I've got a bottle. I've got to move this. I set the bottle here. I then take my hand and I move the bottle from point A to point B. According to Aquinas, we've just proved that God exists. How have we just proved that God exists? This is called the argument from causation or cause and effect. So can we all agree that what we just witnessed was a cause and effect relationship? My hand caused the bottle to move. Well, we're good on that? Okay, so we've got a cause and an effect. But if we think about it a little further, the bottle in that situation was not the only thing that was moving. Something else was moving. It was my hand. So, if in order for something to move, there has to be a cause and effect relationship, we might well ask, well, what caused my hand to move? Well, it was the, it was my tricep. My tricep muscle flexes and contracts, and that causes my lower arm to move, and that hits the bottle, and that causes the bottle to move. Okay, fair enough. Well, what caused my tricep to do what it did? Well, it was the nerves, the nerves in my arm. The nervous system causes muscles to contract, and, and they move, and that causes you to be able to do everything you do in your everyday life. So it's the nerves that cause the muscle to, to do what it does, right? Well, what causes the nervous system to react the way it did? Well, it was the neurons firing in my brain. My brain sends out neural signals into my nervous system, and that causes my muscles to contract and my arm to move and it hits the bottle, etc. Well, what caused my neurons to fire the way they did? And you see, we can keep asking that question. And so what started out as looking to be just one cause-effect thing is actually a series of causes and effects going backwards. And so Aquinas says, at this point, you've got two options. Either you can keep saying, okay, well, what caused that? Well, this did. Well, what caused that? Well, it was this caused before that one. Well, what caused that cause? Well, it was this preceding cause. And you can keep going into infinity. But if you do that, you fall into absurdity. Why? Because in order for this thing to not be moving and then to start moving, there has to be a starting point for that whole cause and effect relationship or chain. You can't have an infinite series of causes, otherwise you never arrive at a starting point for the whole thing to get going. Does that make sense? It's got to stop somewhere. So option one is not available to us. It leads us into irrationality. So what's option two? You posit that somewhere along that chain, however far back you can trace it, you're eventually going to have to arrive at what he says is a first cause the first cause of all that takes place after that. Well, what must be true of this first cause? Well, there can be no preceding cause before it that caused it to do what it did. Otherwise, that cause would be the first cause, and you have to push it back a step, and we bay back into our infinite chain. So, the first cause of all this stuff has to be self-sufficient, self-sustaining, immutable, etc. You starting to see where he's going with this? This, he says, we call God. God is the first cause of everything that happens in the universe. Any motion that you see, any cause-effect relationship, the fact that the universe wasn't and then it started means that ultimately there's going to have to be a first cause who is an uncaused cause. 
self-sufficient, self-sustaining, needing nothing outside of itself. We good on that? Maybe you can try that out with an atheist one day, see if it works for you. That's Aquinas' argument for the existence of God, but then we have to ask a question. Is there anything inherent in the argument that I just gave, that Aquinas gave, which necessitates that the God we've discovered is a trinity? No. Could, could that God not have been Allah? Or the Mormon God or some other deity? Why does it have to be the trinity? Well, just based on that argument alone, it doesn't have to be. So in reality, we've not concluded that God exists we've concluded that a God exists. That's where we've gotten. But Aquinas and all of the philosophers and theologians in the Christian tradition who have used this kind of argument don't believe that the God they've discovered is just a God. They believe it's the triune God. So how do they get from a God to triune God? They've closed this gap between themselves and the concept that God exists just by a reason. But how do they get to here? How do they close this gap? Well, they would say, at this point, we must confess that reason has its limits. We can only go so far with our reasoning. We will eventually run up into the wall, which is as far as we can go. And once we've hit this point, if we want to know anything further about this God we've discovered, we're going to have to turn to Revelation. And so Christian philosophers and theologians who do this will then turn to the Bible, which they believe is God's revelation, and they will exegete it and interpret it and see that it teaches there's one God and that this God is said to be revealed in three distinct persons, and they'll go, okay, so the God we discovered with our reasoning is actually a trinity. But notice, we did not need any revelation to get from here, ourselves, to the conclusion that God exists. We were able to do that all on our own. So we could have gone into our little philosopher's alcove in our home, pulled up our comfy philosopher's armchair next to our fire, sat down, closed our eyes, reasoned for 30 minutes, and gotten to the conclusion that God exists. We didn't have to crack open a Bible. We didn't have to reference anything to do with the revelation of God. We got there solely from our own minds, our own reasoning. Now, ultimately, yeah, if we want to get the full picture, we're going to eventually have to turn to Revelation. Because God's mysterious and, you know, you can't know everything about him without him telling you something. But we are capable of getting part of the way, maybe even most of the way, all on our own. So, that's model one for how you know that God exists. Your reason. And there's a million different lines of reasoning or evidence that you could plug into here instead of the one that we went through. You all have heard of arguments for the existence of God before other than that one. But they all have in common that we start with ourselves and we reason our way to the conclusion that God exists. So that's model number one. Do you know how to adjust this thing? I have to loosen it. I'm not sure. Sure. <laughs> oh, wait. There, there it goes. goes. There you go. Maybe not. Is that as far as it goes? 
It slides down. Oh, oh wow. Yes, it does. Not quite. I have just erased them. Well, I'm going to have to come back to it. That's the problem. Oh. This is why I need my chalkboard. All right, well, we'll just have to make do with a really weird angle. This one doesn't require nearly as much drawing, so that's okay. No worries. All right, now we're going to look at model two. Obviously, this is the one that we will be advocating for and concluding is consistent with scripture, and it is called the model of revelational primacy. Revelational primacy. We will eventually draw a diagram of this model, but before we do that, I'd like to open up the scriptures and take a look at what it says about the nature of God, the nature of our knowledge, and our relationship to our Savior. So open up to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. We're going to be starting in verse 18. Ideally, we'd spend like two hours walking through and executing this passage, but we certainly don't have time for that. So we're going to go verses 18 through 23. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Now, two things to note from this text to begin with. One, all men know God. All men know God. Now, that's not just an abstract thing like all men know the truth that a God exists. Like, like it's, it's a propositional knowledge. Like, I know that there are kangaroos in Australia. Like, that's just a fact I know. It's not something that's personal or intimate, but that's not what this, it's not that all men know that God exists, it's all men know God. Now, that's, that's to be distinguished between our personal relationship and our personal knowledge of God in Jesus Christ. This is a completely different context, but all men know the triune God who is the creator of the universe. How do they know that? Well, what does the text say? Verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. God has revealed himself. How has he revealed himself? What does the text say? In the things that have been made. So what does that mean? It means that everything in this universe, trees, rocks, the sky, whatever, is revealing God to his creatures, everything. And it's not just the, the, the inanimate objects. It's us. We are a part of the created things as well. And how do we testify, or how is God revealed in us? Well, we're made in the imago dei, the image of God. So God reveals himself to every man, woman, and child. 
from the moment that we are conceived, we are in the image of God. We cannot, as Calvin said, we, don't, we cannot even have self-consciousness of who we are or the things that are around us without at the same time knowing the God who has created those things. All men. I mean, this, this is so radical. I, I remember the first time somebody told me this, I was like, no, this is absurd. All men don't know that God exists. That's why we have atheists. But that's not what the scripture says. All men know God exists. So why then do we have atheists? Why do we have that? And why do we have people who believe in a false God? If they know the true God, why do we have people who worship Allah or Buddha or the Mormons or the Jehovah's Witnesses or anybody? Well, what does the apostles say? They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. I, I love the image that, that I've heard a number of people use of you wade out into the water with a beach ball in the ocean. And you take that ball that's full of air and you're, you're trying to submerge it under the water line. And every time you get it under the water line, what does it do? It, it comes right back up and so you've got to push it back down again and then it continues to fight you to come back up. And so you've got to suppress it under the water again. And it's that constant struggle of fighting to get this thing under. That's what men do with the truth of God. It's there. It's fighting to come back up. But because they are slaves to sin, because they were born in Adam, they hate that God, and they seek to suppress what is within their, their conscience, what has been placed within them, that image of God that is theirs. They're seeking to fight it. Why? Because they love to serve their sin. And if they were to acknowledge and submit to the God who places moral demands upon them, they would have to give up the thing that they love most, their sinfulness. And so they are constantly suppressing that truth, unless... The Spirit of God should come and raise them to spiritual life, at which case that, that struggle, which hopefully all of us in here have experienced, comes to an end, and we submit. But contrast that. Sorry, I may have to switch this around a few times, but contrast that with this. In this model, when we started here, man doesn't necessarily know whether God exists when he starts his whole reasoning process. For all he knows, God might not exist, and if that's where his reasoning takes him, that's the conclusion. God doesn't exist. This model actually treats man as if he's a neutral creature who's just honestly examining the world around him, and he's just curious, and he just wants to know whether God exists. So he does his reasoning, and he follows the logic wherever it takes him. But that's not what the Scripture says. All men know God, and yet they suppress that truth. Now, just as a quick side note, who is it that follows this model within Christianity? It's the Roman Catholics and it's the Arminians. Why? Well, what do those two theology systems have in common? An absolute commitment to free will. And this places man in the position of being absolutely free. He's independent of God. God's, God doesn't control whatever comes to pass. His own thought processes are independent of God. And so if he wants to know God, he's got to get there on his own. And the other position would obviously be the reformed position, which acknowledges man's slavery to sin and total depravity. And the fact that that total depravity doesn't just affect man's lusts and desires so that when we think, when we reason, 
there we're unaffected by sin. It's just when we see that temptful image on the internet, that, that, that's when our sin comes out. No, we call this the noetic effects of sin, the fact that sin affects every aspect of man's being, including his ability to reason. He uses his reasoning to suppress that truth. And so that's why, some of you may have seen that quote I posted last night, there are many unregenerate men who will reason, many Roman Catholics who are unregenerate, who will reason their, to the conclusion there's a God, but it's not the God of Scripture. Why don't they want to find the God of Scripture? Because they're unregenerate and they don't like that God. And the God that they've discovered still allows them a measure of human autonomy and human freedom and they can do as they please. So, one method says, we don't know whether God exists, we've got to figure that out for ourselves. So we'll reason our way and we'll follow wherever the logic takes us. And when we have to tag on some revelation, we'll do that. The other says that God reveals himself to all men so that they truly know that he exists. Where'd I put my thing? So let's diagram this one out very quickly. Here, it is not man at the center. It's God's revelation. Then God reveals himself to man through the created order and directly to man in the sense that man is made in the image of God. I hope you can see that if you're in the back. God's revelation is the basis for man's knowledge here. It's not his own autonomous reasoning. Any fact that is a fact that we know is that fact because God has made it to be so. And we cannot understand anything in the created world independently of the purpose for which God intended it. But that's what secularism tries to do. It tries to treat all the facts of the world as if they're just neutral and we can just discover them on our own without any reference to the purpose for which they were created or the thing that holds them together or provides a foundation for them. Now that was about 15 seminary lectures worth of stuff condensed into like 40 minutes. There's so much more. In order to truly get the full picture, we'd have to go through a lot more. But I, I pulled that back from where I, where I wanted to eventually take it so that we could have some practical application. Why does any of this matter? And yes, we're eventually going to get to confession still. But why does any of this matter? What does any of this impact? Well, there's one area where this has a tremendous impact, and that's the area of apologetics. That's the area of apologetics. The way in which you choose to defend the faith will, even if you're not aware of it, will be in large part determined by which of these two models that you're operating on. So let's take the first one. And for those of you who have been introduced to this, this is the difference between presuppositional apologetics and evidentialist apologetics. Paul did ask me to touch on this, so I'm going to try to as well. If you view, if you're an Arminian and you view the world in this way, man's autonomous, he's got free will, he's independent of God, he's got to conclude that God exists on his own, and you're approaching this man, this unbeliever, what do you need to get him to do? You need to get him from here to here, for starters. How do you do that? You've got to get him reasoning properly. If you just present him with the right reasoning or the proper evidences, 
he'll apply himself because his reasoning is not affected by sin. His lusts may be, but his reasoning is not. So if you can just present him the proper reasoning, the proper evidences, he's going to, as a neutral and objective person, come naturally to the conclusion that the God of Scripture exists. So what do you do? Well, you provide arguments like the one I just did. You talk about the complexity of life and the sciences and how that's a proof that God exists, and it is, but you're viewing them as autonomous and as if you've just got to get them to make a choice, and you appeal to them as the ultimate judge of whether these things are true or not. You put them in the judge's seat and say, I'm going to present my case to you. Won't you just please accept it? And I know, because you're an honest person intellectually, that you'll do so. You've just got to be given the right reasoning. If, if you're dealing with an atheist, it's not because they're suppressing the knowledge of God that they don't believe in God. It's just they've never been given the right line of reasoning before. They've attempted this whole reasoning equation, and they concluded that God didn't exist, but it was only because their thought process was messed up. They just need to have the proper argument presented to them, and then they're naturally going to fall straight in line. And if you watch Arminian's debate, Arminian apologist, William Lane Craig would be a great example of this, that's exactly what they'll do. They'll argue by presenting reasons and evidences, which naturally to us seems like the appropriate thing to do. And in a, there's a context in which it may be, but not when you're viewing him as a neutral, rational, non-rebel against God. And what ends up happening is, if you give a man or a woman who is suppressing the truth of God more evidences and more reasoning, what are they going to do? They're going to suppress that too. They're going to they're come up with a way in their own mind to take the arguments you've given and to, to twist them and fit them into their own worldview of unbelief. Everything in creation is evidence of the existence of God. Don't get me wrong. But the point is, they've already got all that evidence right in front of them. And what are they doing? They're suppressing it. So you can give them more of that all day long. They can do the same thing with it. Now, is it true that God could use less than perfect apologetic methodology and if you presented some reasoning to them that God could use that to bring? Sure, God can do that. But the question is, how should we view the unbeliever? And sh should our, the way in which we approach them be consistent with Scripture or not? So, that's the first approach you can take with an unbeliever. The second approach starts here. It says that the man or the woman that I'm talking to knows God, is a rebel against God, and is suppressing the truth of God, which is all around them at all times. They are surrounded. Their conscience is testifying to them constantly of the existence of the God that they are suppressing. So, if I view them in that way, what am I going to do with them? Well, I'm going to seek to point out that... Let me back up real quick. Because this is true, because the man or the woman that you're speaking to lives in God's world, and the world operates according to the principles that God has set, and morality is the way it is because God set it that way, and this person is made in the image of God, and so they do have a conscience which testifies to them of all of this, eventually, that's going to come out in them. Because they live in God's world, they can't escape that. And they will eventually give you evidence that they know that this is the case. Now, they're attempting to live in God's world while professing that this God does not exist. This could be an atheist, or it could be 
a religious person because they're professing that a different God exists. But what's going to happen? They're going to eventually give you evidence. Let me make that concrete with an example that happened to me. I was in college, how was this, three years ago or so, and I was taking summer school class. Now, in summer school, they make you move out of the dorm that you lived in during the year, and you move into a different one, and you get a new roommate just for that summer session. So that happened to me, and the roommate that I got was an agnostic atheist type. And so the first night or two, I don't remember which one, we get to talking, and the subjects turn political, theological, philosophical. Um, I, I enjoyed talking about that. Apparently, he did, too. So we did, and eventually, this, I don't know how, but the topic turned to abortion. That's a pretty common topic for these kinds of discussions uh, to go to. And at some point, and he was a pro-abortion advocate, as you can probably imagine, but at some point in the conversation, he made the statement, now I know it's wrong to kill babies. And that was all I needed. Why? Because this man is an unbeliever. He's suppressing the truth of God. He's professing that there is no God, and hence there's, there's no morality, Things are just random. There's no reason why things happen the way they do. There's no ordering principle that unites all of reality and the laws of logic and physics and all that stuff. It's just, it's all random. It's all chance. We're here as a result of a big cosmic bang, so to speak. If he were consistent with that, he would never have made the statement that he did. Why did he make that statement? Because he's made in the image of God. And he lives in God's world. And he can't escape that. No matter how hard he's suppressing that truth, it eventually comes out in him. He is a religious person. He will worship something, as we've all heard preachers say before, and it's true. And so he said, I know it's wrong to kill babies, and I jumped on him. I said, why? Why is it wrong to kill babies? And he fuddled through some incoherent explanation as to why that would be the case on his, his, his ground of, of atheism. I said, no, the reason you know it's wrong to kill babies is because you're made in the image of God, and you've just given me evidence of that. You are suppressing the knowledge of the God who has made you in his image, and everything you say and everything you do demonstrates that, because when you go outside and you walk down the side of the road, you assume that if a car comes along, it's going to hit you and it's going to kill you. So you don't walk in the middle of the road, you walk on the side of the road. But you have no way to account for that in your worldview, because according to you, there's no reason why the laws of physics are the way that they are, and so it's, it, there's no reason why that should happen, but you assume it will, because you can't live in God's world according to God's principles and live consistently according to the worldview that you've set up for yourself. Sinful suppression of the knowledge of God. And so what I didn't do with him was say, well, if you'll just consider my argument for causation, I think you as a rational person will agree with me that the Christian God exists. I could have done that, but I went straight to the heart. Why? Because this person's made in the image of God, and that's going to speak to them. Now, just because I did that doesn't mean that that, that method versus the other method is automatically going to result in regeneration. That's up to God. But the question is, should I approach him as he wants to be approached as the judge of whether I've presented a good enough case for the existence of God, or should I approach him as the Bible says he is, a rebel? And should I bring that to his attention every chance that he gives me? That's the question of apologetic methodology. How do you defend the faith? How do you view the men and the women that you're attempting to reach? So how does any of this have to do with the confession?
Back to our original question. Why does the confession start where it does with the nature of Scripture? Because what is Scripture? It's God's revelation of who He is. We could start our confession or our systematic theology or whatever with our own thoughts and our own musings about who God is, and we could build from there. Or we could start with what God has said. And if we're going to start with what He said, we need to talk about what the nature of His revelation is, and that's Scripture. In other words, before we can talk about what we know about God, we need to talk about how we know about God. We don't start with model one with ourselves and come up with what we think about God. We start with his revelation. His revelation is the basis for everything. Why does logic work the way it does? It's not just a random chance. It's because God's made it that way and he reveals himself in that. So next week we're going to start with chapter one on the scriptures and we will finally get to the confession. I hope that this has given you maybe a little different perspective on how you approach unbelievers, how you think about the world around you, and how you think about God's revelation and the majesty of the triune God. Let's pray. God, we are thankful that we don't serve the unknown God, that we serve the God who has revealed himself in the person of his son, and he's not left us in darkness, and he's not standing back, helpless, watching the world, wondering why there's so much evil and, and destruction, but, Father, all of it is a result of your counsel, your perfect and holy will. And we thank you that you have redeemed a people in your son, and that we are the benefits of the recipients of that grace. God, we ask that you would conform us, as we've heard read many times, the, that you are purifying for yourself a people, and, and we desire to be purified. Do that work for us. God, I pray that you bless our fellowship after this. Continue to bless Paul in his preaching at the prison. May our families be a reflection of the fact that we are slaves, not of sin, but of Christ. We ask these things for the sake of the mediator our Savior. Amen.